What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Some people really like the sound of rules. Otherwise, we could call them ideas. Yes, I'll definitely employ these ideas. I'm making air quotes into my life. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 196. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, you may have noticed when you hit play on this episode that we are closing in on a big milestone, one that ends in two zeros. In just a couple of weeks, we'll reach our 200th episode here. We have lots of fun stuff planned, both here in your feed with a special episode and over at Patreon and Instagram. For our 200th episode, would you help us celebrate by introducing two friends to What Should I Read Next? Most podcast players now have a share button that allows you to text a link right to this episode, or depending on who you want to share the book love with, it may be better to tell them in person so you can show them how to listen to a podcast for the first time. Readers, it's been amazing to see our readerly community grow over almost 200 episodes now, and I'd love to see more readers find the show, enjoy the book love, and figure out what they should read next. In today's episode, you'll get to know Anudeep Reddy, a Kansas City reader who grew up in a competitive school environment where engaging books were in short supply, so he had to get creative with his reading from a young age. Anudeep is an imaginative reader who appreciates the escapist quality of a good novel. In fact, he says it can even be a problem sometimes. But lately, he struggled to find books that call out for him to live between their pages. Fantastic escapist reading can be found in any genre. So today, I'm recommending three books to Anudeep that you'll find on completely different bookstore shelves. We're also exploring books that combine adventure with philosophy streamlining your reading decisions, and what it's like to have a librarian girlfriend. Uh, Spoiler alert, it's pretty great because books show up out of nowhere all the time. What a dream, right? Let's get to it. Anudeep, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very thrilled to be here. Someone else, I think, is thrilled for you to be here. This has happened in the past, but not terribly often. Your girlfriend actually submitted you to be on the show. 
might have been a prank on her side. <laughs> Not a prank. No, she did it out of love. I'm lucky in that sense. She said that you all bonded over a love of P.G. Woodhouse and Calvin and Hobbes on your first date. Yes. I don't even know why I brought up the old man Woodhouse, but... I was wondering that myself, honestly. Probably I was nervous. But she read him and she was like, oh, yes, I have the collection. I have the Jeeves omnibus and everything. I was like, what? I didn't know anyone else in the world was reading these British books. And then I obviously had like Calvin and Hobbes collection because I grew up with them. And as a kid, the dream was one day I should be able to afford this. And that day I would think I've made it in life. Have you made it in life yet? No, I've grown to love more things that I want to buy now. So. <laughs> Actually, my whole family rekindled their love of Calvin and Hobbes thanks to a recording with a podcast guest here. I spoke to Eric Zimmer, who has his own podcast called The One You Feed, back in episode 139. And he loves Calvin and Hobbes. He chose that for one of his favorite books. And we didn't own any Calvin and Hobbes in my house at the time. So I was inspired to get a couple ones from the library and left them on the coffee table. And anytime anyone sat down on the couch, they just grab the book and read a few pages and start chuckling. And now we have quite a collection, but not the box set. I think there's like an arc with Calvin and Hobbes. When you're a kid, you're oblivious to the depth of it and you just enjoy the shenanigans. And then as you grow older, you, you're more the parent, I guess. I mean, I'm not a parent, yet, but I'm more looking at it like as a dad would. Not as a six-year-old? Yeah, not as a six-year-old, but I think maybe in the arc, ending arc of my twilight years, I'll again be Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> so Kara said that she was inspired to nominate you for the show after a conversation you all had about what you wanted to be different in your reading life. And then she emailed us. Can you tell us about that? We were talking about how perhaps we are jaded now or we lost the magic of reading something and being blown away in an extent where it just captures you and holds you in a magical world. And I'm a sort of reader where I live through the books vicariously, as in like I've become the characters. I think that I'm living in the world like I really get deep into them. So we were talking about Harry Potter. I said to her, I haven't come across such an amazing place again, where it was just childlike wonder and being fascinated by everything, where you suspend all your pretentious ideas or be like, oh, that's not right. Oh, that, that magic doesn't sound right. Or, you know, you just suspend everything and you're taken away by the magic of things. And it doesn't have to be fantasy or so far out there that you believe it. I was talking about books like that because somehow I was blaming myself to an extent being that, oh, I'm trying to read books, but I'm not getting as interested and not finishing these things. That was our conversation where we just, I just, not her, she constantly has love for books, but I wanted to rekindle my love for books by finding something as exhilarating or exciting again. I don't think you're alone in that quest. How old were you when you first read the Harry Potter books? I was a little late. I think I was in my seventh or eighth grade. The thing is, I've until a couple of years ago, I never even owned a Harry Potter book. So as growing up, my parents couldn't afford to buy me those books because they were expensive in India. So I had to just wait until people finished them. And I was kind of low in the pecking order of the friendship list of people who had the book. Oh, no. So I had to wait until it passed around on 10 people before I got it. And then later on, my very close friend got interested in these. And so his parents bought him books. So I got it much quicker then. But like they were not my parents' priority. It wasn't like, we're not going to spend that much money on a book. It's fine if you don't read it. It's okay. You can read it later. But when I read it, it was so bizarre and out there. 
because I never read anything like that before. Something so fantasy. And I obviously immediately thought I was Harry Potter. <laughs> Someone's going to take me away the same way and just going to go to a castle and things are going to be... I don't know if they were directly better for him. <laughs> That's a good point. That book, when I first read it, it just swept me off my feet. I never even knew of this genre before. Yeah, never looked back. <laughs> you said that reading Harry Potter was a requirement to have a functional high school social life? Yes. It's a contrast between how an American high school works. Here, the quarterback or like any sports person is considered the coolest in the school. And they're the click or whatever, or that's what I we we far away from other side of the world uh, glean from from movies. But in India, you're cool if you read a bunch of books and you come first in the class uh, in the ranking system. You had to be sort of a nerd to be cool. Harry Potter was the cool thing where all the cool kids were like, oh, we read this book. And they were in this conversation with each other about Dobby, uh, when he got the sock. Did you remember that? Oh, do you think they could have done? Like all these conversations were going on. If you hadn't read the latest book, then you were left out. Uh, what do you think? Dementors, uh, is Voldemort going to give vision to the Dementors? Or like all these weird <laughs> uh, ideas that the, all the kids were having. And you could not participate in this discussion. Half of the school year was just absorbed in these things. And then people would start writing fan fiction for them. And so you absolutely had to have read Harry Potter to really have uh, any cool into any group. I cannot make a direct comparison because here in the States, the first book was published in 1997. I graduated in high school the year before, but that is not what my high school experience was like. I do remember going to college and my freshman year, I caught a ride with a couple of seniors to an event outside the city where I was in school. And we had all just seen the Romeo and Juliet movie adaptation that had Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Yes. And I remember knowing that, oh, I have landed someplace different. I went to a pretty nerdy college. When one senior girl turns to the other, fun girls, they were my sorority sisters. I wasn't expecting this. I hadn't lived like this in the past, but one turned to the other and said, so what did you think about the water symbolism? And I was like, oh, wow, this is not a conversation that I would have had in, in you know, a car ride with friends in my past life. I was here for it personally. I don't know how you felt about your Harry Potter high school days. I know you said you gave a nice anecdote, but I'm now just completely sidetracked on what water symbolism. <laughs> oh, it was so good. If you hear that comment and you go back and watch the movie, any reader who's accustomed to looking at imagery will be like, oh, wow. Water, water everywhere. Because water always means something. Wow, that's a new thing I learned. Thank you. <laughs> I'll have to watch that movie again. So that was Harry Potter High School in India. This will sound very dystopian to you, but initially they just brought books from the library and just spread them across the classroom. And you read whatever landed in your hand. It wasn't that the school didn't care. It was more that they wanted us to learn the language more mm -hmm. and get meaningful reading out of it. You know, like life education out of reading. That wasn't happening. It was just, here, take these books and read them because they're in English. Somehow you're just going to absorb this language. My whole, whole education was in English, but still, they wanted to make sure we could speak it and write it very well. Your whole education was in English? Yes, I know. That surprises a lot of people. But yeah, I learned my mother tongue, which is Telugu, and the other language they also taught in school was Hindi, which is the national language of India. Mm -hmm. 
those were like side languages that got added on after kindergarten. But I started out learning A, B, C, D in English, and then other languages came in. So my entire curriculum, the serious sciences, social sciences, all these textbooks and everything was in English. But they wanted to make sure we spoke English always in school grounds. You are not supposed to speak any other language but English. I went to a Catholic missionary school. Missionary schools in India are different compared to like Africa or other places where in India there are a status symbol to an extent to get the better teachers from all across the country because they have a bigger system. The library periods were very frustrating because the librarian was this weird sadistic personality who would open up only one cupboard and we had to just pick books from them. In those days before Harry Potter, Famous Five by Enid Blyton. Those were really famous mm -hmm. among the kids. And there was only one book in there. Any kid who was before me would always pick the cool books. If you don't sit up front, they're all gone. And you're just with this really sad adult looking books that are left in there. And my reading was that until at least until I finished high school. Because I wasn't mm -hmm. buying books by myself. And my school library, their priorities were completely different. They weren't trying to like spread literature. They were just making sure people read things in English. Now that's your English reading history. Where did you grow up? in India that Telugu was your native language? I grew up in the southern part of India in Hyderabad. Uh, it's a city down there that is huge. It has a population that is more than Kansas and Missouri together. Just the city, eight or nine million people in it. There's a rich history of Telugu literature. Did you grow up reading any of that as well? Actually, no. I was too aloof of a kid to pay attention. Now I regret it looking back and I think I should have read more Telugu things back then. Now I try to read it and I'm a little rusty, but I try to go back and read books that were part of curriculum. And I realized, oh, these were actually really great works of art that I just missed out on because Telugu was not the cool thing in the school. They really forced on English. So Telugu was like a side thing because oh, all your future education, your exams, your job interviews, every letter you write is going to be in English. Telugu as a language has amazing poetry. I try to teach my girlfriend some of it. She's a country girl from Illinois. She loves it because the language is phonetic. So if you learn how to read, you can never mispronounce anything. I didn't know that. You just read the words and they'll sound exactly the same no matter who says it. And now you all are in Kansas City. We've had quite a few guests actually from Kansas City. I just got to visit for the first time back in April of this year. And I don't know if Kansas City is having a moment or if it's that enjoyable to visit all along. And I just didn't know what I was missing out on. But I really enjoyed visiting your town. Kansas City is having a good moment. I moved here three years ago, right around the same time she moved here as well. And I moved here thinking, hey, it's going to be middle of the Midwest and I don't know how people are going to be here or what kind of arts and culture and social activities happen here. But it's like Kansas City sucks up all the young people from all the surrounding giant Midwest land. <laughs> and they all come here and there's giant art districts here. They've started with perhaps young people, but now the whole city is involved in it. It did jack up the prices of things here, but... Oh no, I'm sorry about that. But no, it's completely worth it. Kansas City is now a ex really exciting place to come to. I hadn't really put this together, even though I knew your girlfriend, Kara, was a librarian in Kansas City. But when we went to Kansas City, of course, one of the things we had to do was see the main location downtown of the 
Central Library with the mm-hmm. amazing 25 foot mural of the books. Readers, if you don't know what we're talking about, we'll put it on Instagram and in our uh, show notes. And we had to go play chess on the roof. And I got to look up my own books that were on the shelves, which was lots of fun. I know the Central Library is amazing, but I've heard from our Kansas City readers and listeners that there's a really vibrant literary scene in your town. So thanks, Kara, for being a part of that. Yes, definitely. That took me by surprise. I did not know there were so many authors coming out of Kansas City. You can go to book events and you'd see lines around the block for people trying to get signatures from authors. All the tickets for those events are like gone in within the minute that it gets posted. There's a nearby town, which is just 30 minutes away. Lawrence is a university town. And Mm -hmm. that place is amazing. So many authors come visit it. We had Neil Gaiman come and talk there as well, which was just great. Did you go? Yes, yes, we were there. (gasps) So jealous. He read a short story from his short stories book, and then he read several sections of three or four books. And he went on for like an hour and a half, two hours, but we just loved it. It was an absolutely amazing time. So Anuzeep, in your reading life right now, how do you decide what to read? Well, since I told you about my dysfunctional upbringing, (laughs) reading upbringing, (laughs) not my upbringing, I don't want to throw my parents under the bus. I have a giant list of books that I didn't get to read in schools or in, when I was going to college because I just didn't have access to them. So Steinbeck or Road Not Taken Poem has never been read by me or, you know, Neil Gaiman books. I didn't discover him until I came here and I was in my 20s. So a lot of books for me were things I discovered later. And so I just haven't gone through a lot of the classics even right now. So my pick is always confusion between do I read this red hot book that came out last year or in the last few years, or do I read this classic that I know that it's been admired for maybe a century? So it's always a toss up between those. Currently, I'm reading Exhalation by Ted Chiang. Amazing, amazing short stories. On the side is The Darkening Age by Catherine Nixie, Mm -hmm. completely nonfiction. That's another section that I got into very recently where I realized, okay, I'm, I think I'm old enough now that I can tolerate non-fictional books that are real life stories or biographies or political books. So I, I gave a very long winded answer to just say that I'm picking fancifully, but anything that will deliver on a good aha moment, a moment where you read it and you feel like, oh, the emptiness inside of you or that special feeling you get when you finish a book and you feel like you've gone through someone's life or you have this experience, emotional or intellectual, where you feel you're left with something. It's hard to search by that criteria, but... It is hard to search by that criteria. I know that I personally really relate to your quandary of debating between the red hot new or recent release and the classic that you know you want to read but do you want to read it right now? I really relate to that. And I know a lot of other readers do as well. Let's talk about your books. Mm -hmm. Anadeep, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love and one book you don't, and then we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. I might be able to guess what your first selection is. I mean, it's Harry Potter. Pretty much uh, explained all I could about it. And (laughs) my second book was something I read very recently, actually, of Mice and Men. If anything is an indication, all these the other two books are tiny books. They're not long. Yeah, what does that mean, Anadeep? Is it just coincidental? No. A, I love it that I can read it in a sitting 
and like be engrossed. There's something encouraging, I think, knowing that, oh, it's only 50 more pages. I read 75 and 50 more and this book will be done. So yes, I can sit through this instead of being, oh, I read 50, there's 300 more pages. So maybe I'll read 50 more tomorrow and maybe you get back to it. Sometimes you don't, you get engaged in other things. So I think a small book really encourages you to just finish it in a slot. I know I'm making it sound a little mechanical, but there's encouraging part of it that it's small. And I think they're meant to be read that way because they're just short, amazing experiences. My second thing that I probably admire even more is how an author can fit such an amazing story or so much details in the story in such a short amount of pages. You don't feel that he left things out or, well, these, this is about good books, but you don't feel that they left anything out or they cut short in some parts. They leave you with a lot more to chew on. You spend days wondering about this book. And I think of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, just like that. It just leaves you emotionally devastated, I guess, after it. You also just admire how much you came to understand, love, or hate every character in the book. And you did it completely with all your heart, because he convinced you in such a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. You just got that proper slice of a life section, and it told you so much of the time period, of the area they were in, the misery or conundrum or the happiness of these characters. It's just amazing. And yet Harry Potter is a seven-book series with thousands (laughs) of pages. So if you're going to live in another world, I mean, you pack up your things and you move in for a while. Oh, yes. Okay, but you don't need thousands of pages to keep you happy as a reader. I mean, I read the Game of Thrones series. It was a struggle at times, but I still went through it. So yeah, I'm always ready to pack up and be like, okay, I'm moving to Hogwarts now. So (laughs) I'll see you again in a couple of years. So it's like an admiration of both. Even in the small books, I still pack up and move in. That's the way I read. The length doesn't appreciate anything. You're just happy you're reading more about this world. You're just happy that it's taking you in on a longer journey. Okay, we will look for that in the books we send you away with. But you hinted at your next book. What did you choose for your third favorite? When I picked this, I thought this is going to be a cliche choice. And hundreds of people have probably picked this, The Little Prince. No, no one has. How? (laughs) (laughs) I love that that's your reaction because it's your favorite book. Okay, tell me about it. How did you end up choosing this one? It is the fantasy land I want to be in. It takes me back, including the drawings in it, to the cartoons I watched as a kid, but with greater depth and story to it. It seems like such a simple world, yet the things that the little prince says have such depth and weight to them. They didn't try to make it, oh, we're going to underlie so much philosophy into this. It just feels like childlike wonder. You just read it with a smile on your face. You can't help it when you're reading it. It just takes you in the way I read it. I'm a cartoon in the book. I'm just in there in the desert. I'm not a real person. I am a cartoony sketch. And that's the life I'm going to live when I read this book. It's like Calvin and Hobbes. There are no words to explain the emotion that the little prince brings up in you. It's happiness. It's sadness. It's so many things mixed together. But overall, you leave feeling like with the serene, understanding of the world. Everything is in place, as if you've made sense of the world by reading this children's looking book. (laughs) I love the way you put that. But what did you choose for a book that was not for you? This might be controversial. Dark Matter by Blake Crouch. 
First of all, can I just say that when it comes to any opinion in the reading life, mm-hmm. I mean, you might feel like it's controversial because I know many people love this book, but it's never just you. So I'm sure you're in good company <laughs> here as well. With that being said, tell me about it. How does anyone tell why they don't like a book without sounding like a pretentious? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I don't want to be bad on the book because the premise is amazing. Because I'm an engineer and I studied these things. So I do really understand the physics. But that gives me more complaints to have where in, in a factual sense, I'm like, ah, that's not right. Or and that does, that's just too much of a MacGuffin or Deus Ex Machina or whatever those clever names that are there for plot devices. <laughs> so I have maybe a personal <laughs> grudge against it, but I thought the premise was insanely good. That it turned into an action thriller when I wanted it to be more philosophical and more observation on humanity. Mm-hmm. Yesterday night, I was talking to my girlfriend about this, and I made an analogy, and I promised her that I will repeat it on the radio show, even though it's stupid. Uh, <laughs> I said, if this got made into a movie, it'll star Dwayne The Rock Johnson. It won't star Benedict Cumberbatch. That's the kind of book this is. <laughs> and I might be really wrong because Mr. Cumberbatch, he can really pull off roles. So he might probably do this and make it look good. But I love the premise way too much. And I thought, oh, but you're using it for an actual action thriller mm-hmm. kind of setting. I wanted it to be more, uh, be more philosophical, be more like the golden sci-fi books. Okay, two things. Mm-hmm. One, non-sciencey people... I mean, like myself, liberal arts major right here, love to hear what people who actually know about the fields that are so important to novels they enjoy reading, what those people actually think about the way, uh, for example, the science is executed. So please don't feel bad about that. And secondly, wishing a book had been something else and being disappointed that it didn't fulfill what you would have liked to read, that is an opinion that you can also hold without feeling pretentious. Although I have to say, when Kara wrote in, she said that she recommended this specific book to you because she really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And it just killed her confidence and her abilities to recommend books that you will love. Has she come up with other good ones since then? She has. Okay, that's what I was hoping to hear. I think that this was perhaps a year ago or more when I read this book. And even to this day, we still debate about this book. So you know how how big of an impact it had for her where she was like I really thought I had him figured out and then he's now on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) I've just compounded the problem even more but no it's she likes the challenge as a librarian she loves the idea of being able to find the niche and like getting the specific area into which people's ideas or their preferences fit into I think she loves figuring that out it's a journey. And she she's realized that I'm not this uh, very specific guy. I'm just very moody <laughs> in how I pick my books. <laughs> and so she's given up to, she's turned into, oh, I'm just going to give you a list and how, whenever you like it, pick, pick whatever you feel like from that. But it's just amazing having a librarian in your life where you just come home and randomly there's a book she thought you might like and you read it and you go, oh, wow, this was amazing. And her eyes just light up. Well, now I wish I lived with a librarian. Although, honestly, I probably have enough books in my house. So We have a mini library. I'm glad that you have a librarian in your life. Anujeep, is there anything you'd like to be different in your reading life? I might be putting too much burden on you with this question. 
how do people in this day and age where you can be gratified quickly by browsing on your phone or on the internet or watching things on TV, because there seem to be infinite good shows on TV, how do you throw away all of that and read a book? Is it like you have to come up with a regimen? You have to be strict? You have to like, oh, I'm going to be no, nothing digital, unless it's like a Kindle, maybe nothing digital for this hour? Or how do people do it? Because I keep getting very distracted with phones or with messaging. I'm like, oh, I could have been reading 10 different news or looking at 20 different memes in the time I read these three pages because I'm a mm-hmm. very slow reader. I just wanted to hear your opinion on it. I think this is a question that depends a lot on the person for the specific, let's say antidote. That makes it sound like we have an illness. <laughs> but I do think there are two general things that can benefit almost everyone in the situation. And that is you need to have good books on deck waiting for you to read them at all times. If you don't know what you want to read and you also have a phone in your hand, it's even easier than it would be otherwise to keep doing the thing with the phone or Netflix, because you probably have a big queue and you know what you want to watch next, especially if you're in the middle of a good series there. But if you have a good book, ideally that you're in the middle of, and you know what's coming next, and you know that you've got another good book you're looking forward to after that, and another good one after that, I think it makes it more enticing and just a lot easier to pick up the book instead of the device. So that's part one. You need good books. Part two is you need time to read them. This could mean either a designated time in your day, or it could mean that you literally just pick a time and you, for example, set a timer. My friend, Laura Tremaine, she has a great episode about reading early in her fairly new podcast, 10 Things to Tell You, and we'll put a link to that in show notes. Set a timer set it for 10 minutes even, or 15 minutes and sit down and read. And if you are a person who's distracted by your digital devices, then don't read on your phone or on an iPad, but choose a physical book or an old fashioned e-reader, the kind that doesn't have say email on it and you can read the book. And if you think you might get an important call, then don't silence your phone but just put it in another room. Don't leave it in your pocket. Or it's so easy, especially as we develop habits and we kind of train ourselves to check our devices and refresh our notifications. Um, Just put it in the other room and sit down and read. I know that so many readers are surprised that even if they just read for 10 minutes a day or 10 minutes several times a day at a time when they didn't used to read, they'll notice that they're getting through those books a lot quicker than they would otherwise. Because even those small minutes add up. Now, if you want to take that a step further, you could start um, reading in the pockets of time when you usually might check Instagram, say, if you're in a really long line at Target, or you could try listening to audiobooks when you commute or something like that. Whatever specific way it looks in your life, have good books and designated time to read them. Really, if you can eliminate decisions about the reading life, Mm -hmm. you get more reading done. You know you have a good book that's already decided, and you know you're going to read 20 minutes before bed. Already decided. All you got to do is do it. But when we're left in a moment thinking, well, what do I want to do right now? I don't know what your like poison of choices on your deep, but mine is Instagram. And that's when you're like, well, I'll just look at this if I can't decide. So make it so you don't have to decide. Not just speaking to you, but to readers everywhere, because this is a very common question. I'll definitely try to put those rules in. Some people really like the sound of rules. Otherwise, we could call them ideas. Yes, I'll definitely employ these ideas. I'm making air quotes into my life. (laughs) Okay, now I know how you feel about rules. (laughs) Not a bad thing in your book? No, not at all. Okay, with that in mind, are you ready to try to get some good books in the queue 
for when you're not looking at your phone. Yes, we're excited. First of all, I was wondering about a nonfiction pick by, I don't know, there's people who love Antoine de Saint-Exupéry and mm-hmm. call him Saint X with great affection. He has a not nearly as well-known memoir slash autobiography. Its English title is Wind, Sand, and Stars. Is this one you know, Anadip? I know he has a memoir, but no. When you were talking about The Little Prince, I was remembering how when I first, I think actually my only trip to France, and I've only been to Paris, and I would love to see the rest of it, but the four days of my life I spent in Paris, I picked up a French copy of The Little Prince and I was there. I've always wanted to learn French. I really can't say anything except a few food items and Jean-Paul Anne and where's the bathroom. Like this is the extent <laughs> of my French, but I had aspirations and I still have my French copy of The Little Prince and I've always wanted to read it and I have no idea what is or isn't lost in the American translation. But I do know with Wind, Sand and Stars, the title is different in French. It is Terre d'Homme, and that literally means land of men. First, it was published in the U.S. as land of people, but... Yeah, that's a horrible title. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not great. The reason I'm telling you this is that this is a story of adventure. It's a story that especially appeals to people who have any interest at all in flying. It's on National Geographic's 100 Greatest Adventure Books of All Time. But it's also really beautifully written, and he's very philosophical, and that's the part I really wanted to get to here. Terre d'Homme refers not only to the beautiful landscapes that you can see when you're up in the air in an airplane, and he does talk about those views and how it causes him to think about humanity in a different way quite a bit in the book, but also his philosophy about how to be a person in the world. And that same gentleness and serenity that you see in The Little Prince himself, I think is really evident in this book. And you can see just how much of not just the author's mind, but his beliefs and his personality are in that book that you love so much. And I think that might make really interesting reading for you. Something else that I really like about this book is given your love of The Little Prince, you can read about St. Exuberi's personal adventures, and you can see how his personal experience became the experiences of the little prince. Like one of the, I think, best parts of this book is where St. Exuberi lands on this plateau that couldn't be reached except by air in North Africa. And he's writing in 1939. So air travel is nothing like it is today, even for these small planes. But he lands on this plateau in North Africa. There are what he believes are small meteorite craters everywhere. And you've read The Little Prince. So I imagine immediately you're like, oh, I've read about that. Yeah. But in a different form. And I think for anyone who loves his fictional work, that this could be really fascinating to come to afterwards from that perspective. He's talking about so much of the same things. He's talking about love and life and friendship and also flying, except this time it's an airplane flown by humans. So all those themes are present, but it's a different type of story. And I think the contrast could be really fascinating. How does that sound? Wow. Okay. You set the bar really high. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But I will say that some readers who are not particularly interested in flying find all the flying descriptions tedious. It is a tale of adventure, but it's a quiet, serene, philosophical adventure. It's not, let me race to the end so I can find out what happens kind of adventure. But I think given what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy, 
that would actually make this a good fit for you. Yes. I'm just sold on even the the name of sand, wind, and... Wind, sand, and stars, which might not do justice to the layers of meaning in his original title, but I still think it's a pretty great title. (laughs) Just the title. St. X wrote it. Okay, I have to read that. We're just going to end this episode right here. Maybe I shouldn't (laughs) have started with my best book because I'm going to go out on a limb more with these other two. No, no. I mean, I'm just happy with this that no matter what books you recommended, you can say Fifty Shades of Grey now and I'd still be just like smiling Uh giddily. I like the way you're thinking. Okay, so you said that you're often torn between the hot new releases or the classics that are burning a hole in your bookshelf. You probably don't need any more hot new releases, but I'm going to give you one anyway. I think this could be really interesting for you. And I just want to say now that I'm not trying to think of a thousands of pages long series that you could really move into for weeks months because I think that, well, first of all, that's a tall order and readers who specifically try to find the next Harry Potter, I think end up inevitably disappointed. But instead I'm trying to find some of the elements of that reading experience that were so satisfying to you. And it's really freeing to me. So thank you for saying this explicitly to know that you do love the shorter stories that you can finish in a sitting. Readers who love Harry Potter often try to look for something similar, something written for a younger audience, something with fantasy elements, something set at boarding school. But I think readers can get that same experience where you feel like you know the community and you're deeply invested in the characters in a lot of ways. Like my husband blew through the Colorado set Kent Hareff novels last year. And I think that was similar for many people. It's their favorite mystery series, like the Louise Pennies or the Deanna Rayborn. So I have in mind a book that is definitely fantasy, but I don't think it's obviously a Harry Potter read-alike in any way. But some of the things you said about Harry Potter make me think this could be promising for you. Also, this is about 400 pages, so it's not long like Harry Potter. It's not short enough to read in one sitting. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm going to put it on your radar anyway. This book doesn't come out till September. It's called The 10,000 Doors of January. It's by Alex Harrow, who I was just delighted to discover this morning is actually a Kentucky author who is not terribly far from me. Do you read much fantasy aside from Harry Potter, Anudeep? Yes, I do. I do not read a ton myself, so I wasn't going to be scared either way. Those knowledgeable about the fantasy genre would call this a portal fantasy. This also has a strong historical element, and this is a book about a book because The 10,000 Doors of January is her story of finding not only one of these 10,000 doors, but a book called The 10,000 Doors. You know very early that she's an adult now, and she's telling you her own story, but in time, the story begins in the, I'm going to say late 19th century, possibly early 20th. She was seven years old and she found a door. You come to understand as a reader that she's not talking about, you know, like the door that goes from my office into my kitchen, but a capital D door that is a passageway between worlds. Your narrator, January Scholar, she finds a door and she says that, oh, many of you listening will have that ring of recognition as I describe what this door was like and where it took me. She says that many people have stumbled through doors, either on purpose or accidentally. There are 10,000 stories about 10,000 doors that lead to Fairy, to Valhalla, to Atlantis, to Lemuria, to heaven and hell, all the directions a compass could never take you. 
She's grown up as the ward of a wealthy man because her father is out, well, she thinks he's out, finding artifacts from all over the world. But her father is actually embarking on a secret project that is extremely important to January. But January has been left out because she is not old enough to know about doors and their power. Meanwhile, the adults in the room or on the other side of the world have no idea that January herself has this proclivity to find doors. And not only that, without them realizing it, she has inherited her father's power to write reality in words. And so not only is this magical adventure where she's finding doors all over the world, but it also is extremely suspenseful because at a certain point, the bad guys figure out that January has this power and they want to use it to their own ends, which of course are completely opposite her own. And to readers who are highly sensitive, I will say that I had to cringe and skip ahead seriously for a few 15 second chunks because I have a thing about blood and needles. And that became an issue in this book, just briefly a little bit. It was really fun to read the way the book was written, as in like, oh, doors are real things. We all know about them, no matter what. <laughs> and repeated premise in the book is that doors are change. And anytime there are uprisings or revolutions or breakthroughs or discoveries or interesting occurrences in remote places, it was a door and someone found it and walked through it. I am captured. I, did, I really love that idea. And I also like the style of books where they start with the assumption that, oh, the history, oh, we always had dragons. Like, that's normal. It's just natural facts. So this should be really interesting. Yeah. I'm excited that you're excited. And honestly, oh, I'm sorry. I can't help myself. But you really did fling the door wide open to what I now think would be a great final <laughs> pick for you. Have you read anything by John Scalzi, especially Lock-In? No, no. Well, he's a science fiction writer. He writes about freedom and ethics. And what I didn't say is that in The 10,000 Doors of January, freedom is a major theme. You found Dark Matter not to be the book for you because it wasn't the book you'd hoped it would be. I think this one might do science fiction in a way that more fulfills your expectations and hopes for it. That's interesting because Scalzi built his reputation writing military science fiction. So this book, and it does have a follow-up, uh, which just came out in 2018. This first one, Lock-In, came out in 2014. They're a change of pace for him. But what he does here is write science fiction that has social consequences and a philosophy deeply embedded in it. Ooh. And you also said, you like a book that tells it to you straight. Not like it doesn't mess around with the niceties or anything, but just completely takes for granted. This is the world we're in. We're not going to act like it's weird. We're not going to acknowledge that it's fiction. Like you signed on for this ride and here we are. So in this book, Lock In, it's a little bit police procedural, which does give it a mystery adventure kind of feel to it. And a whole lot of science fiction. I'd say it's equal parts of each. The deal with Lock In is that there's been a virus. 1% of humanity are affected. It causes the condition known as lock-in, which leaves its victims fully awake. They know what's happening, but they cannot move without help, and they cannot respond to anything happening around them. And it seems to affect every sort of person without discriminating. And the world has had to change because of what's happened to help these people move on. But the reason that you know this is the situation and this is what's happened is right at the beginning of the book. 
you get a news report almost that is attributed to the entirely fictional highschoolcheatsheet.com. So right away, you've got this believable reality that's like, hey, people, here's what's happening. We've had this virus. Everything is changing. This is what's happening. This is how we're dealing with these people who are suffering from lock-in in the real way they're dealing with it is that these people are getting around using robots. Or more strangely, they can rent time in the bodies of people who are not suffering from this illness. And those people are called integrators. And I don't want to get like way down deep wow. into the sciencey stuff, but there is a crime. Someone is murdered at the Watergate Hotel, as a matter of fact. But the person accused of the crime was using an integrator. So the question is, who did it? Who had control? Who's truly responsible? What does this mean for the world? What are the extent and limits of human freedom? It asks all these questions about the world we live in, and it's able to do that really effectively because the story is not set in the world we live in. It's also a rookie on the beat story because, of course, the guy assigned to the case has been on the job for like two days. So that's kind of fun. And as he's getting oriented in this world and figuring out what on earth is going on because he's new to this, you get to follow along as a reader because you're new to this too. And I think that theme really works. The only reason I know about this book is because a What Should I Read Next guest who loved the same kind of science fiction you love, that's Keith Watts, chose this as a favorite back in episode 100. So any listener whose ears are picking up right now, episode 100 is meant for you. But Anudeep, we're talking about your books and reading today. And how does that sound? That sounds actually great. Sounds like Michael Crichton and... Robert Ludlum and all these guys came together in an amalgam and came up with <laughs> Tom Clancy, you know, the military writer. Just put and, it in the bestseller hopper. Yeah, I like it. I really like it. Uh, a part of my story I didn't tell you is I used to read some of the military fiction that my dad loved so much, like Robert uh-huh. Ludlum's books or Tom Clancy books, which were just these thick, fat books that were so engrossed in. And I read them out of desperation, literally, because I had no options. And this reminds me of those. And I love the premise so much. I really do like this surrogate kind of who is in the body, who did it. There are so many possibilities. The setup is so great that you can't really guess the ending. I like those kind of stories. You know, you can't guess the outcome. Three books you've told me are so in their own fields. It's just amazing. I mean, it's like if I want to pick and read one, they're just so different from each other that there's no way I'm wanting something else for a while. Well, I am happy to hear it. Deep. we talked about three books today. They were Wind, Sand, and Stars. We're going to go with the U.S. title by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. The 10,000 Doors of January coming in September 2019 by Alex Harrow. And Lock-In by John Scalzi. Of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? I can't read the second one anyway. That does make it easier. Uh, I think I'll pick whatever shortest first. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Wind, sand, and stars it is. Anudeep, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking books with me today. I'm blown away. I can't even tell you how blown away I am. I've enjoyed this more than I even imagined I would. Thank you so much. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Anudeep and I'd love to hear what you think he should read next. 
That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 196, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Subscribe now so you don't miss a book in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next week. If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Be sure you're following What Should I Read Next on Instagram because as I said, we'll be sharing fun 200th episode celebrations there in just a couple of weeks. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with two friends for our upcoming 200th. Help them get subscribed and tell them your favorite few episodes so they know where to jump in. And for more bookish enthusiasm and recommendations, check out our Patreon community at patreon.com slash what should I read next, where we have bonus episodes, behind the scenes, and book love galore. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.